This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest host, Governor Phil Bryant. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media in the South, we're delighted to welcome a great American, and if I may add, one of America's intellectual giants, Victor Davis Hanson, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. His focus is classics and military history, and he received his Ph.D. in classics from Stanford University. Professor Hansen has written or edited 24 books. The latest project, which will be on sale commencing October 5, 2021, is titled The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. The Case for Trump was published in 2019. His other books include The Second World Wars, Basic Books 2017, The Savior Generals, How Five Great Commanders Saved Wars That Were Lost from Ancient Greece to Iraq, and The End of Sparta. Indeed, it is our great honor at America's Roundtable to welcome Professor Victor Davis Hansen. Welcome, Professor Hansen. Welcome, Professor Hansen. Thank you for having me. Uh, we would encourage our listeners to visit uh, victorhanson.com and read Dr. Hansen's excellent piece titled How to Ensure a Middle East War in Five Easy Steps. Uh, Dr. Hansen, in your excellent piece, you explain the rule which is defining Biden administration and which leads America's domestic and foreign policy, and that is do the exact opposite of the Trump administration. And as you stated, I quote, just as border walls, fracking, pipelines, low inflation and low unemployment are now inherently bad, so too are all of Trump's policies in the Middle East, unquote. Uh, Dr. Hansen, Biden's policies are hurting Americans, our economy and our allies in the Middle East, not just Israel, but also the Arab world, which opposes Iranian autocratic regime and the terrorist proxies, Hamas, Hezbollah, and Houthis. After four years of relative calm during the Trump administration, terrorist organization Hamas, which is ruling Gaza, fired over 4,000 rockets into Israel during the past two weeks. So four years of calm were replaced by war during the Biden administration's first few months. Dr. Hansen, could you kindly share your observations and thoughts on how to reverse these destructive policies in domestic and foreign policy arena? In a reductionist sense, we would go back to the longest period of calm we've had in about a half century in Israeli-Middle East relationships. And that what would that mean? It would mean we just undo what we've done the first hundred days. So we had cut off Hamas and the Palestinian Authority on the idea that they were fungible, their funding was, and it was going for weaponry and not just uh, 
cultural, social, economic development. So we would not funnel $700 million through the UN. I think they've already got $400 million from the Biden administration. That would send a message. And if you see that big tunnel complex, you can see how that money is fungible and how what it's being invested in. Then we would make it very clear that we support a democratic consensual society that honors human rights. We would remind the area in general that if you're of Arab lineage, you have constitutional rights in Israel, that Israel treats you as a citizen in which your ethnic identity is more incidental than essential to who you are in a way that is not just rare, but on found in most of the Arab world, especially, and of course in Iran as well. So, and we would talk about the fundamental existential difference between those two societies. Third, we would give up this very dangerous dream. And it's, I thought it 10 years ago when it surfaced that it was naivete on the part of the Obama administration. But as it developed, you can see that it was deliberate. And that is this crackpot idea that you were going to promote a revolutionary theocratic Iran on the premise that as the long marginalized uh, Shia Persian element in the Middle East, that it would serve as a deterrent or maybe a balance of power to the Gulf monarchies or the moderate Arab states or Israel. Therefore, we would enter into an Iran deal. We would give them more money, supposedly from frozen accounts, and that would have a moderating effect on them, but it would also balance Israel and the Arabs. So if the Netanyahu government came to us and said, you know, we need to get this arms sales or the Saudi Arabia's, we would say, hey, wait a minute, we've got Iran over here. Don't push us too much and vice versa. And that was a complete misreading of the fundamental differences between, say, a Gulf monarchy or a Gulf state and Israel vis-a-vis -vis the Iranian revolutionary government. So we'd have to recalibrate that, stay out of the Iran deal, cut off the supply of money that was funneled to Syria, Hezbollah, Hamas, Yemen. And then finally, I think it would, it would have been very important to recognize the sort of bravery, political bravery, but also independence that a number of Arab countries had recognized Israel and more were going to do that under the Abraham Accords. We can encourage that again. All, this administration was very uh, disdainful of that. And it was almost as if they were calling any Arab country that was going to come forward and recognize Israel that they were somehow inauthentic, almost like they were Uncle Anwar's, the Uncle Tom idea that you're, you couldn't be really Arab and, and frontline and revolutionary and pan-Islamic and then recognize the Jewish state. So that was a terrible message to send. And that was pretty difficult to pull off, to take a calm and in 115 days, turn it into a war, but they did the same thing on the border. We had a calm border, and now it's chaos. Unfortunately, a lot of people who are in autocratic societies interpret magnanimity as weakness to be exploited rather than kindness to be reciprocated. So as long as Hamas is calling the shots, it's not gonna work dealing on a quid pro quo basis with the Palestinian hierarchy. You can't deal with Hamas. Dr. Hansen and the Wall Street Journal's editorial board published a piece titled After the Israeli Ceasefire with a subheadline that reads Islamist radicals saw how democratic support for Israel has eroded. I quote, the progressives who are increasingly driving democratic social and economic policy want to drive Midas policy as well. 
Representative Rashida Tlaib, whom President Biden praised on a Michigan trip this week, accused fellow Democrats of taking orders from Netanyahu the day before. Senator Bernie Sanders is trying to block a U.S. arms to Israel. Wavering American support could increase the risk of military clashes as regional actors perceive that the Jewish state is militarily constrained when attacked, unquote. Professor Hansen, you have relayed concerns about the radical left's agenda in America, which attempts to erode our nation's founding principles and the values and principles that are embraced and cherished by the majority of America's citizens. Are we at a juncture of taking a path that may lead to a rapid decline of the U.S.-Israel relationship? And if so, what do you foresee as the future of U.S.-Israel relationship in the context of a Biden administration lurching to the far fringes of the Democratic left? There's certainly cause for worry because the left has constructed the Israeli-Palestinian war as the Minneapolis police force versus George Floyd. Let's be honest about it. And they transmogrified a very complex situation into the simplistic binary of woke versus not woke, white versus non-white, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that governs their, their sort of Pavlovian response to it. And so that's something to worry. The other worry that you brought up is that the Democratic Party is not Bill Clinton's party of the 1990s. It's been hijacked by hardcore leftist, progressive, socialist, and even further left. And they control maybe not the exact numbers, but they weren't successful initially in the primaries, but they, they're they the center of gravity in that party. That's where the youth is. That's where the enthusiasm is. That's where the woke Silicon Valley, woke money from corporate America, woke money from Hollywood goes to. And this is creating a rift because Traditionally, 70% of Jewish Americans identified with the Democratic Party. But that group now is itself bifurcated. The older Jewish American Democrat is isolated and marginalized in that party. And they're not even aware of it sometimes, but they are. The younger generation, the third or fourth or fifth generation of Jewish Americans, whose parents maybe came in the 1870s to 1930s, they're more secular now. They don't Many of them have never been to Israel. They don't have a particular identification with Israel. Or more importantly, in the circles in which they travel, they find any affiliation or a suggestion of such as a liability, an albatross around their progressive necks. Some of the most critical things written about Israel are from Jewish Americans who don't identify as Jews, but do identify as leftists. Now, that's all cause, as you point out, for pessimism. But what is, I think, encouraging is that there's a flip side to that. And just as the Obama and now the Biden progressive leftist agenda has polarized people, and it's more extreme than anybody told us, and the never-Trump assurance that old Joe Biden from Scranton was was a moderate just as that has been untrue and is creating a backlash, so too people are getting tired of these operatives. And that will, I think, reverberate in favor of Israel. People are saying, you know what? Now they're doing the woke stuff, the cancel stuff, the deplatforming stuff, and they're applying it to Israel. And I'm sick of being lectured, lectured, lectured. And I don't want to hear any more about Hamas. I think that we're going to see a, a reboot in 2022 in the House races. And I think the Republicans are going to come back to power and there's going to be a backlash against all of this. And eventually, not now, but eventually Israel will be a beneficiary of that. 
what's good about what's seen in, in of all the bad things that's happened, I think the support for Israel has now transcended the traditional Jewish American base, that there is a base of conservatives, principled evangelicals who see Israel as an admirable Western power that has no margin of error, and they have avoided some of the quote-unquote decadence that characterizes late-stage capitalism and Western societies in the United States and Europe. Not that they wouldn't evolve in the same direction, given the same values, but they don't have that luxury. To do so would be their extinction. It's great to hear your optimism about uh, America's foreign yeah. policy in the Middle East and towards Israel. Uh, can we be in the same way optimistic about domestic policies, about American economy, about uh, reversing the trends with you know, cancellation of Keystone Pipeline, the recent attacks that we experienced on our energy sector from the rogue groups, and uh, how do you see things evolving in domestic policies in, in next elections? Well, that's a very good question, and it's complex because we are Americans first and Democrats are Republicans second. So we obviously don't want any policy in, embraced by either party that hurts our country, either divides it or impoverishes it. And yet these policies that have been enacted these first three and a half months do just that. And I'm talking, as you have alluded to, an open border where immigration law is rendered irrelevant and we're not abiding by the melting pot theory of legal immigration that we all support. And that is measured, meritocratic, with people who have some education and skills, and they're diverse, and they assimilate, integrate, and intermarry very quickly, and they become Americans. But when you have so many people from one area, and most of them do not have high school diplomas or skill sets, and they come illegally without English, then the this assimilation melting pot phenomenon is slowed down and even encouraged. That's a mess. And we took a very booming pre-COVID economy and just the mere idea that you would cancel pipeline, you would stop new fracking leases on public lands, you would tell the gas and industry, oil industry at the very moment when we needed them to get back into full production that they were going to be out of business in 20 years with the Green New Deal, or that you would warn entrepreneurs that they were going to pay exorbitant capital gains, personal income, and corporate tax, as well as estate tax. You, what you were doing, in other words, was suppressing supply and production at the very time you were encouraging demand that had, was natural anyway coming out of this horrendous lockdown. So printing $4 trillion and unleashing that consumer demand while you were suppressing timber production or you were paying people $1,400 per month or two per period to not work and you were suppressing the appetite for labor is giving us first inflation. I think it's not true. We're increasing at 7%. That would be if the monthly increases were static, but they seem more geometric, that each month they go up, but they go up at a greater rate than they did. The, and that's going to end up with 10 or 12%. We still have high unemployment and a, and a worker shortage. And we might have a high demand GDP, but we're not going to get GDP in terms of production, I don't think. So I think we're looking at stagflation at the end of the year. And now, how is this going to work politically? The Republicans were going to have a natural... Every president suffers reversals. I think George W. Bush didn't because of 9-11, but they all suffer reversals. And because they're only seven seats away, depending on the whatever special election cycle we're in, from taking the House, they were probably going to have a good chance anyway. But now I think it's looking like 2010, when there was mass pushback against the uh, highly partisan 
uh, Obamacare initiative. And so I think a lot of people are going to say, you know what, this is not sustainable. You can't have this level of crime violence in our ma major cities. You can't have an open border. You cannot discourage fossil fuels like this. You can't have lumber at $100 per 4x8 sheet of, of plywood. You can't go from $2.85 a gallon in California per gas and go up to $4.05 in a mere two months, three months. This is unsustainable. And so I think that's going to benefit the Republicans enormously. But boy, it's going to hurt the country, these policies. And over the past few months at International Leaders Summit and Jerusalem Leaders Summit, we've been talking about the significance of the Abram Accords. And uh, from our initial assessment, the Abram Accords between Israel and the four Arab nations appears to have also demonstrated their resilience uh, during these difficult past two weeks. And one of our advisory board members, uh, former U.S. Congressman Scott Taylor, a former Navy U.S. Navy SEAL, mentioned about the urgent and the importance of institutionalizing the Abram Accords as we see that there are certain members of Congress uh, that are working to undermine this very positive achievement in the Middle East. Professor Hansen, what would you suggest as principal steps and actions in institutionalizing the Abram Accords and what can engage citizens and leaders of the state government and in Washington, D.C. do to strengthen and advance the Abram Accords? I would try to emulate what is emerging in the Pacific. So we're taking disparate countries that were traditional allies but we took for granted. I'm speaking specifically of Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, Australia, to a lesser degree, the Philippines. And we went to them and said, look, you're on the first line of Chinese expansionism. And under the Obama administration, you were worried whether you were in the nuclear umbrella, you were out. You were worried whether we would come to your aid. And we were trying to galvanize all of these countries that were very vulnerable into a block of countries. And the big missing tessera in that mosaic was, of course, India. And we were getting India. And so I think the same thing could be true in the Middle East. We can go to the Gulf states, we can go to Egypt, we can go to Jordan, we can go to some Morocco, and we can say to these countries, there are going to be incentives for you to recognize Israel. And those incentives will be that in times of crisis, where we can't promise that we're going to go to your aid for an internal war or something, but we are going to more or less patrol the Straits of Hormuz, the Persian Gulf, and their, Iran is not going to threaten you. And if they should attack Israel or take attack any of your countries, you have a blank check to reply and we will supply you and with arms sales if we can. And then we need to isolate Iran because there is so much internal intention. That, that's one thing we did very well. What's happened now is once we backed off from the sanction and signal that we were going to do the Iranian deal again, that sort of appeasement is really being manipulated. China is now coming into the, to the void and with its, its very effective propaganda is, is attacking Israel and the Arabs and, and connecting them with a racist, so-called racism in the United States and becoming a real megaphone in the Middle East. Russia is trying to cause trouble. So there is developing Iranian, Chinese, North Korean, Russian axis of convenience, given our weakness. So we've got to reverse that. And there has to be incentives for countries that take risks to recognize Israel. And I think we have to say to them, what are you worried about? What can we do to 
lessen those worries? Is it security? Is it arms sales? Is it preference in trade? What do you need to take these risks? Because it is risky. Basically, they're saying to us, we are no longer going to let Hamas and the Palestinian Authority and Islamic Jihad dictate the policies how 500 million Arabs of the Middle East have to envision Israel. You don't have that veto power over us, and we're not going to allow it anymore. And I think one of the bright things is I talk to people in interviews or they call who are going to and fro from the Middle East. There is a sense that a lot of countries, at least privately, are not sympathetic to Hamas in the Arab world. They think, you know what, I'm tired of sending money there. I know they've been refugees, that was a tragedy, but so was the Volga Germans, and so were the East Prussians, and so were the Greek Cypriots, and that's happened, so were the people in the Balkans in the 90s. We don't put people on TV and wave their keys and say, this is my home in Danzig I lost, this is my home in the Ukraine I lost, or on the Volga River, this is my home in Belapais that was my home, tragic as that is, because... The world says we've got to move on. We don't say to Jews, do we? 850,000 of them from 47, 56, 67, and even 73 that were ethnically cleansed from homes in Damascus or Cairo or Baghdad. We don't say, these are my homes and I have a right of return to go to my beautiful villa in Alexandria. No, we just say, sorry, history's tragic. It's not melodrama. You lost your home and you went to Israel and you got over it and you made a new life. That's the brutal way of the world. And nobody ever dares say that to the Palestinians. And yet we do that all the time with other people. And I'll leave you with this question. And there is a great confusion on the left, they, or a deliberate one. They keep saying, we're not anti-Semitic. Please don't say, even though that if you collate the statements from Ilan Omar about it's a Benjamin baby, or you look at the map on the wall of AOC when there's no Israel there, or you look what Rashida Tlaib has said, they are anti-Semitic not to get into the Women's March or Farrakhan and all that stuff. But then if that's true, why do you focus on Israel? Why do you say, we're not going to talk about Turkey and the treatment of Kurds in Syria? That's just off the table. We're not going to talk about what China does to the Uyghurs. That's off the table. No protests at the Chinese embassy in London. No idea that Nike shouldn't be having shoes assembled by people who were indentured workers, slaves. Why is it always Israel? Israel, Israel, Israel. And I can't come up with a, I know they're a Western country in, in a non-Western region. I know that they're wealthy and powerful and they're not sympathetic as a victim anymore as they were maybe in the four, late 40s and 50s. But ultimately you get to the point that it's a Jewish state. And if it wasn't a Jewish state, then there wouldn't be this asymmetrical focus and fixation on it. And uh, it's especially true of the United Nations. All of their resolutions are inordinately anti-Israel. And to add maybe to this, what you mentioned in your piece, that actually Hamas sympathizes, promised deaths to the Jews. Those share, they are freely shared on social media, Twitter and Facebook, while conservatives in America are eliminated from the same platform. So there's a, such a double standard. They do. And if anybody looked at the charter, as you, I think it was in 1989, 88, the, the Hamas charter, it's cribbed from National Socialism in its, in its references to the Jews. So I think that is a very disturbing fact. And there are elements of that. When I was growing up out in rural California, I, I never met anybody who was Jewish. So I was 18. But if I heard Jewish people mentioned 
it was usually some businessman or something who said, oh, I can't make any money on the fruit because the Jews control the markets in New York. Or that somebody would say, I can't get a loan because those damn Rothschild, I didn't know who, who are these Jews? I never saw one. But it was coming from that right. And there was a liberal tradition from the Democratic Party to stop that. And that has transmogrified 180, it's flipped. And now that anti-Semitic right wing is very marginalized. They're on some wacky, but they don't represent anybody. If you go to Montana or Utah or Idaho, you're not going to find a big anti-Semitic community. That's not true in downtown New York, as you saw these clips. If you're having dinner and you're Jewish and you're in LA or an outside cafe in Brooklyn, you're in danger. And it's a left, if you're on a campus and you identify as Jewish American and you have an Israeli flag, you're in danger. Now that all comes from the left. And so the left is really the engine that is driving anti-Semitism in the United States today. And I'm baffled because this is what destroyed Jeremy Corbyn and the Labor Party in Britain. But their intent on this wokeism binary of we are for non-white and all white are evil, and therefore Israel is in that category and the Palestinian is in the good category, and we're going to be deterministic and, and just look at everything through those crazy lenses. That's what's happening. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we are truly delighted and honored to have Professor Victor Davis Hanson, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. And in fact, we just want to remind our listeners and our audiences, please take time to reserve your copy of the forthcoming book authored by Dr. Victor Davis Hanson titled The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. It's coming up on sale, commencing October 5, 2021. So reserve your copies. Thank you so much, Professor Hansen, for joining us on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. Thank you, Professor Hansen. Thank you for having me. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's two FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Adinsami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest host, Governor Phil Bryant. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org.